Let's pray before we begin. Exodus 16. Father, we just thank you in Jesus' name for this time together. And I just pray, Father, for your grace, Lord, as we work through, Lord, these wonderful passages about deliverance. And Lord, I just pray there's so much of what we read about the Israelites that is true in our life. And I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would convict and warn and build up, Lord, that we would leave here this evening built up. And Lord, I pray for youth group. I pray for Rock the World. I pray for nursery. Please minister to the children and the teenagers, Lord, as we're here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the children of Israel just been through a remarkable deliverance, the Passover. We saw in the Passover chapters that over and over and over again, the children of Israel are reminded by God, whatever you do, don't forget about the Passover. Don't forget about celebrating it. Don't forget about why it happened. So much so that they were told that every time the womb is first opened, meaning an animal or even a human being, the firstborn is to be dedicated to me. And so every single time uh, that someone's cow or sheep or goat or whatever, or a woman had a baby, there was a special uh, remembrance and a dedication to the Lord. And the purpose was, you're supposed to remember the Passover. Just as this morning we had communion, Jesus knows, the Holy Spirit knows, we have very short memories. And that's why we were told that when, you know, by Jesus, look, when you guys gather together, and, and take the cup, share the, the bread, and it's a remembrance of the blood that was shed for you. It was a remembrance of the broken body that was, uh, the body that was broken for you. Passover was the same thing. But as we declared last time, rather we mentioned last time, uh, in the days of Hezekiah, who was a great king, Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover after decades of not celebrating it. Same th thing happened with King Josiah. Uh, he reinstituted the Passover after decades. So we have very short memories of God's deliverance in our life. So important that we remember the place that God has delivered us from. And, and uh, not only did the uh, angel of judgment pass over the children of Israel um, after they fled, the Red Sea opened up uh, to them. They passed through on dry ground, but after they passed through on, the, on dry ground, the Lord put the waters 
of the great waters of the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh and the children of of Israel. And in in chapter 15, we see this song, this song of celebration, this song of praise to the Lord for what he had done. And so now they're in the, the wilderness and in verse 27, uh, well, they had come, they had come to this place uh, where they didn't have any water. After three days, they didn't have any water. They finally got to a place, the waters were, bit, uh, were bitter there, and they cried out to the Lord. Uh, the Lord showed Moses uh, a tree, and Moses put the tree in the water, and the water was made sweet. We talked just at the close last time of uh, some people think that tree represents Christ. It does say in the New Testament in two or three places that Christ died on a tree. It uses the tree as a symbolism of the cross. And certainly Jesus uh, makes our bitterness sweet. It's the only thing that makes our bitterness sweet, actually, uh, is Jesus. Now, interestingly, it says in verse 27 of chapter 15, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 wells of water, and the 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. You know, the uh, place where they are at now is just desolation. Ever seen those pictures of Sinai? I mean, it's just nothing but desolation. It's like, how can anyone survive there? And um, every time I read this verse, in verse 27, I'm like, ah, how wonderful. 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. What a wonderful place to be. But then what does the Lord do? Next verse, chapter 20, uh, 16, verse 1, they journeyed from there. And you know, it really is true. God will give you this side of heaven. This side of heaven, although there is rest in Christ, will always be in a battle. And there's such a temptation to stay in a lean, that place of 12 wells of water, 70 palm trees, such a temptation to stay in the place of comfort. And this is one of the, the biggest battles I have as a pastor to poke and prod the body of Christ. Whatever you do, don't stay in your place of comfort. It will become your place of misery because God will remove his comfort over after a while. If you start, um, if you start idolizing the place of comfort. But I find that interesting. He moves them on. This wonderful place. Why can't we stay here, Lord? Please. It's such a wonderful place. Sorry. They journeyed from Elam and all the congregation of, uh, of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. At this time there in that area of that peninsula, that Arabian peninsula, which we know to, as, as Saudi Arabia. And so then the whole congregation, verse 2, of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this assembly with hunger. So remember that expression? Maybe you don't. 
absence makes the heart grow fonder. Anyone hear that? Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, they were slaves. They were afflicted. They were beaten. It says in, uh, when Moses saw the burning bush, um, it, the whole thing is introduced by, it says, the, the, the Lord heard the groanings of the people of Israel. He heard their groanings uh, in chapter 2, verse 24. And he remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And so he looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them in their groaning. But, you know, as soon as we get out of, of that place, we, um, that place of affliction that God rescued us from, as soon as we hit a trial, we begin to long for it again, forgetting just how awful it was. Just how awful it was. And Satan will tempt us in that way. Oh man, wasn't Egypt so much better? It was so much easier. Why did you decide to follow Christ and have him lead you out of that place? Oh, it's so much better there. And so they're complaining. How did the Lord respond? Verse 4. Interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, when it defines love, the first definition of love is what? Love suffers long. Love is some of the more watered down translations, forgive me for saying that, say love is patient. And that's just what God is with them here. These are infants in Christ. These are babes in Christ. Instead of smiting them like we might have done, he says in verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Really? Wow. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Speaking of manna. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So on the Sabbath, seventh day, there's not going to be any manna, but there'll be twice as much on that Friday for them to gather. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel at evening, you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you're complaining against us? Moses says. So here now, when you're complaining about your boss... Who are you really complaining against? Anyone? Just shout it out. The Lord. When you're complaining about your wife, who are you really complaining about? Shout it out. When you're complaining about your financial situation, the fact that you, you, know, that you lost your job, when you're complaining, I'm not talking about just talking about it because we've got to talk about problems in our life. I mean that complaining spirit. Who are you complaining about? 
the Lord. The Moses, they went to the Lord. They didn't say, it doesn't say uh, in verse 4, um, rather it doesn't say uh, in verse 3 of chapter 16 that the children of Israel went to God and said, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the, uh, Lord in the land of Egypt. It says it went to, he went to Moses. They went to Moses, rather, and complained. And when and Moses is saying to them, when you're complaining, you are complaining to God. And let that be just a lesson to us. Boy, that speaks to my heart. I promise you, it does. But notice in verse 4, it says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, but when 40 years later when the children, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel right before they pass over the Jordan into the promised land into Israel, Moses is giving them a sermon, a message, it's a farewell message because he, he's going to die before he goes into the land of Israel. He's speaking to all of them and he, and he says in chapter 8 verse 2 of Deuteronomy, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. Then listen, verse 3, so he humbled you allowed you to hunger. Did you hear that? The Lord will allow you to hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why does God make you hunger sometimes? Not all the time. But why does he give you a, a time of leanness? Why does he give you uh, a time where it seems like you, he's not giving you enough to survive? Why does he do that? It says that so you can learn that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why he did this. He's growing them up. He wants a relationship with them. He wants to nurture that relationship. He wants a relationship with us. Sadly, we so often are like the Israelites. When we have that nice job, when we have all that health, when we have the provision, we just get fat and happy and we're not drawing on the Lord every day. And so what did Jesus say to the devil when he said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread? What did he say? Man does not live on bread alone, Satan, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what he said. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so, verse 8, Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, in the morning, bread to the full, 
For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the children, the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So, you know, the Lord doesn't deliver you. He doesn't save you. He doesn't separate you for salvation, only to let you just perish in your trial. He doesn't do that. He isn't about to do that with the children of Israel. He doesn't, you know, hear ten plagues that he struck Egypt with. I mean, how does someone convince their entire labor force, their slave labor force, uh, what was this, 3,000 years ago? Oh, sure, just, no, no, that was more than 3,000 years ago. About 3,000 years, something like that. How does he convince, how does anyone ever convince a million-person slave labor force to just go? I mean, that's crazy. No man can do that. I mean, Moses... Aaron may have been convincing men. You can't just convince someone to do that. It was 1500 BC about when it was, is when the deliverance of, of, of Egypt. It was a strong hand of the Lord that they had seen, that they had seen firsthand. They had seen the, the Red Sea part. They had seen that. They've already seen the tree go into Uh, the water and make it sweet. God doesn't save you from slavery, from bondage, from the world, from sin, only to allow you to perish. And so that's that's what we can take from it, but there's still, we're going to see this pattern of complaining in their lives. And so there's a prophetic word here In verse 8, he says, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening. The quails are going to show up, and they're going to show up in a great quantity. But they hadn't showed up yet. But the Lord in his mercy is giving the children of Israel, will be giving the children of Israel even a further sign that he is with them. And that's what God is trying to tell you this evening. He is with you. And his dealings with you. He, he's ever doing that. He is with you. So in verse 8, it's a prophetic word that Moses gives to the children of Israel. This evening, he's going to give you meat. And they're thinking, how is that going to happen? There's two million of us and we're in the middle of the desert. How's he going to give us meat? And in the morning, bread to the full. They're thinking, how is he ever going to do that? So verse 9, then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they 
looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small, round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tents. Verse 17, And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. Verse 18, So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And so manna, manna, miraculously provided each day to the children of Israel. And there's just some wonderful applications here with manna. Manna really represents, in many ways, Christ himself. These people, unfortunately, were still worshiping their belly. They were still worshiping food. In John chapter 6, the children of Israel had seen this great miracle. They had been out in the middle of nowhere. Rather, in John chapter 6, it wasn't the children of Israel. It was just a multitude with Jesus. And they were out in the wilderness, and there were five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus turned them into a meal probably for 5,000 to somewhere women and children. There was probably 7,000, 8,000 people there. In John chapter 6, you know, Jesus continued on the way and they, they were following him and they were like, hey, we want to see this again. And they actually referred to this passage here in Exodus chapter 16 when they were following Jesus around. You know, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What do you have for us to eat now? At which point, what did Jesus say? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And manna really um, represents Christ in many ways. And, and this, whole, this whole picture here that God gave them bread for just one day, you will find out very soon after becoming a Christian that God himself is the reward. Spending time alone with him, that's the, that's the most precious reward that you get when you become a Christian, spending time alone with Jesus one-on-one. But you will find out really quick that when you spend time with Jesus on a Monday, 
and it's a rich time, guess what? On Tuesday, that time you spent with him on Monday is long gone. It doesn't do you much good at all. And, and, and sometimes we learn the hard way. Say, you know, I'm going to just spend three hours with Jesus today and it'll be good for the whole week. Not going to happen. <laughs> God wants us every day. He loves us that much. And there's this picture there that uh, Jesus is our manna and we need him every day. And Jesus talks about, in John 15, talks about that whole concept of abiding, living with Christ, that daily, fully shared relationship with Jesus. So the manna, this provision, this incredible provision, and, and, and the Lord does it. He provides day by day by day this wonderful provision. Verse 20, it says, notwithstanding, they did not... Um, let me go back to verse 19. Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So some of them gathered up manna, and they didn't eat it all on the same day. They said, well, I know we were told this by Moses, but I know better than him. We just left it overnight. No worms in it the next day. And, and our relationship with God really is like that. It really, really is. We can't carry through to the next day what we got for him the day before. Or we will start stinking. We will, you know, we're, we're supposed to be going around, the Bible says, with an aroma of Christ. Well, we'll have the, the stank of Steve if we leave the manna that we receive on one day. If I, receive, if I leave the manna I receive from Jesus one day and try to rely on, on it the next. Verse 21, so they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted and so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and call, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. So just the supernatural life that this represents. So every day except the day before the Sabbath, they were to get just one day's meal. But, the, it, but if they kept it over, it would stink the next the next day, but on, on, on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, they collected for two days, and miraculously, it kept for the next day. And so God is showing them. He's showing them that he's real in their life. You know, one of the things that we pray for brand new believers, someone came up to receive the Lord this morning. We rejoice in that, but... We pray that God would make himself real in their life. We're just flesh and blood. And we need to see 
God show himself real in our life, and particularly for newer believers. We pray that for them. So they're seeing this here, these brand new believers, you could say. Remember, they're leaving idolatry. They'd been in idol worship in Egypt. And they're just seeing the hand of the Lord. And so in verse 25, then Moses says, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not uh, find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. So there's always, we're always, all of us have been in this place in our life where we think we know better than the Lord. And and here some of them thought they knew better than the Lord. And they said, well, I know uh, it's the Sabbath tomorrow, but the manna has been dropping every single day, every single morning. It's been there waiting for me. So I'm just going to go tomorrow and and pick it up because I know it's going to be there, even though Moses said what he said. Well, no. You know, they went out and there was nothing. At some point, we just got to trust the word of God. Just, it's, God says it and then it's over. <laughs> the argument's over. It's, because he said it, it's going to happen regardless of whether, what I may think. At some point, we got to get there in our Christian lives if we're going to be productive, if we're going to be fruitful, if we're going to be filled with joy. And so verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Day. Now this is going to find its way into the Ten Commandments. We will be there in Exodus chapter 20. Although Jesus Christ uh, is our Sabbath, and many argue that he obeyed the Sabbath, I still think this is a principle written into creation itself. God rested on the seventh day. We should be taking a day and just setting it aside for the Lord. I really do believe that. I was just reading in Isaiah this week that they were defiling the Sabbath because they were treating it as a burden and they weren't delighting in it, just delighting in the day of the Lord. Now, as Christians, in the New Testament, there was a change where the, 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 the day of rest, the day to worship the Lord, uh, became the first day of the week, Sunday. But then we're told in Colossians, it doesn't matter what your day is. Just choose a day and delight yourself in the Lord in that day. And so uh, we're not under the law, but what's important is that we, we not treat this as a burden, but as, uh, just as a, a privilege of being, being able to delight in the Lord. One of the things about the Sabbath, by the way, it appears that they never had a day of rest when they were in Egypt. They worked seven days a week. So this was not going to be a thing like, oh, no, we're, we're not allowed to work. Oh, no, I got to get out there and make, you know, some extra money so I can make my payment on my fourth car. And it wasn't like that. They had been under bondage and affliction for hundreds of years, apparently working seven days a week. And God gave this to them as a gift. Now, very interesting thing about the Sabbath, as I understand it, some of, the, some of the things that the Lord commanded the Israelites to do to make it, them unique, to make them a peculiar people, 
and separate them from every, everyone else in the world. For example, circumcision, they're required to be circumcised. Others, other ethnic groups also did. Circumcision was one of them, but not the Sabbath. Sabbath was this unique thing. And Sabbath, it was meant to bless them, to bless them. Verse 30, so it says, so the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna, and manna means what is it? Remember, that's what they said in verse 15 of the same chapter. What is it? Manna. And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And apparently, you know, it says that in verse 23, it says that you could bake the stuff and you could boil it and you can do all kinds of stuff with it. So I'm sorry, I just have to say it. It was baked banana bread. Manna Kadi. Baked Manaska. Come on, there's, so, there's only sarcastic laughs in here. Should, Andrew, should I stop? Or... Manna Lisa. Oh, no, that's a painting. Oh, okay, that's not... Oh, see, I got you there. Um, but anyway, uh, it was versatile. I don't know what this stuff was like. It was miraculous, but it was versatile. You could do different things with it, and it... You know, and so it wasn't like they were eating the exact same thing every single day. But they did eat it every day for 40 years. So, wow. You know, it's like um, in the Dominican Republic, all the stuff they can do with rice and beans, and in Haiti, too. They can do all kinds of stuff with rice and beans over down there on that island. And man, lots of different recipes, and that's a good thing. So, where was I? Verse 34 is where I am? Verse 34. 32. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord had commanded, fill an omer with it, to be kept for generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, in the book of Hebrews, it says... This, they kept it in a golden pot. So they're going to they're gonna put some manna in a golden pot and they're going to put it where? In the Ark of the Covenant, eventually. And it would be a reminder that God kept them in the wilderness. Now, did it, was it preserved for years after years? I, I, I remember my grandparents. Man, they had been for 50 years. And they still had a little piece of their wedding cake at their house. And you look at that thing, and that thing was black. I mean, I mean it was just like completely black. And so, I, 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 you know, really cute and nice, I guess, um, that they had kept a piece of their wedding cake. But here, th- they also kept this, this omer, which is, I think it's one day's portion. They put it in a golden pot. And I'm assuming God preserved it, just like he did on the Sabbath. And so that they could remember the provision of the Lord, verse 32. So it's an important thing. That we remember how God has provided over the years. Uh, verse 
33, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to, to be kept for your generation. So there you have it. Verse 34, As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. The testimony is the law. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they, they came to an inhabitant inhabited land they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah chapter 17 then all the uh, congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim but there was no water for the people to drink and therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that me, we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? So how do you tempt the Lord? I personally think that what that means is when you're complaining against the Lord, there's only so long that he'll take the complaining before judgment comes well, he'll have to chasten you or discipline you verse 3 and the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and says why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst so they don't just they don't stop here this is just a pattern with them and Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So this is a serious situation. We're ready to kill them. Even though at the end of chapter 14, verse 31, after they had seen the Red Sea part, it says the children uh, of Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. People are really fickle. So now they're coming against him, apparently ready to kill him. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Remember, he struck the Red Sea and it parted with the rod or he lifted it up and behold I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel now very important some of you know this, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this very same rock here in Exodus chapter 17, Paul said that it represented, or even that it was, Christ. It was a type of Christ. It was a foreshadowing of Christ, of Jesus Christ. And by striking the rock with the rod, smacking it was the equivalent of Jesus being crucified, the water pouring out of it was the equivalent of after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. He poured out the Holy Spirit. This rock was, uh, the water throughout the Bible um, represents the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I think in John chapter 7, 
He said, anyone who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow forth from within him. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll just read it. Verse 4, it says, all drank the same, speaking of the children of Israel, all drank this same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual, from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So later on, when Moses strikes it again, he got into big trouble. Why? Because Jesus is only crucified one time. Once. So when he gets later on, when he gets angry at the children of Israel, because they were complaining again, as they always had, and he strikes the rock a second time and gets very angry with them. God says, sorry, Mo, we can't go into the promised land. It's a serious thing to defile one of the types in the Bible. That's why we're so serious around here about marriage being one man and one woman. In the Bible, that is a type of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's not that we have, that, that we have ill will towards uh, people who enter into same-sex marriages. That's not because we love them as much as we love anybody else. But you are defiling a type in the Bible, and that's a very, very, very serious thing. Moses, after doing everything he did, all he did is strike the rock a second time. But man, when you defile a type in the Bible, that is a serious thing, and judgment is around the corner, the Bible says. And so this rock represents Christ here. Verse 7, so he called the name of the place Masa, which means tempt, and Meribah, which means contend, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so let that just be a word to your own heart this evening. So when you get in the circumstances of life, the trials of life, the first thing you do should not be shaking your fist at God. God, you know, where are you? Are you really even here? And if there's a God of love, why does he make me suffer? You don't want to do that. It says that God made them hunger so that they would understand that man does not live on bread alone, but, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're supposed to be feeding off the Lord in those lean times in our life. Those lean times in our life are, in fact, a blessing. Verse 8, now Amalek. You can just say, ooh. Amalek. Ooh. Oh, come on, louder. Amalek. Ooh. Okay, good. Amalek, not a good guy in the Bible. No, 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 no. Uh, Amalek is going to, for hundreds of years, is going to be an arch enemy of Israel. Amalek is the, was the grandson of Esau. And remember Esau and Jacob, there was that re- hatred between them. There was reconciliation later in their life, but 
that hatred continued for generations after. And it says, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Verse 9, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so a few things here. We learn in Deuteronomy that the Lord obviously is just a little upset here. Would you think at the Amalekites? And he says, uh, he actually uh, says here that he will, verse 14, utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now it took 500 years to do so. It didn't happen until the time of David. God's love suffers long. He's patient. It was up to us when to take vengeance, we'd all do it immediately, right? Come on, right now, just blow them out, take our bazookas. No, not, not the Lord. 500 years before it actually happened. But the reason the Lord is so upset here, we don't find out until the book of Deuteronomy, where it says in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses again, speaking 40 years later to the Israelites, that the Amalekites had come up from behind and killed and knocked off the stragglers who were behind Israel. The old people, the cripples, the children, the women taking care of the children. They, there's one of, these, uh, one of these groups of people that show up in the Bible. They had so far down in the downward spiral of sin that their hearts were hard. And so uh, that's what they did. And so this, this judgment here, but very important illustration here of prayer. It says that in verse 11, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Uh, that was the, 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 the hand being lifted up really represented a position of prayer. And brothers and sisters, I don't know how long it's going to take us to understand that our battle that we have against the flesh, and by the way, I'm speaking about all of these types, and we do this on Sunday nights, we go a little deeper, but Amalek is a type of the flesh throughout the Old Testament, the Amalekites, Amalek. It's always going to our, it, it, it's, it's, they're always coming up our backside, the backside of us and like poking us when we're moving ahead with God. But if we're not in prayer, 
the flesh will prevail. It's, it's quite simple. I, it, 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 it's so true. You know, Ephesians chapter 6, we just learned last week, be in prayer always. It says, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. He prevailed in the battle. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. The flesh will prevail. Amalek will prevail. We need to be in prayer. We need to be calling God into, into all of our life. You know, it's interesting that there's this interplay between sort of the physical and the spiritual here. The Bible does say that in addition to prayer, we, that we need to have action in our life. We can't be these hyper-spiritual people. I'm just going to pray about a job. I, you know, I don't know. I need, I, I'm not going to go out and get a job. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to just wait for the Lord to just uh, motivate someone to find out what my number is and call me. I hear this type of crazy stuff. I, I, I do. Notice how there was prayer and they were physically going against the Amalekites. Later on in Joshua, Joshua's on the ground praying to the Lord and at the beginning, right after they're in the promised land, they had lost a battle, and Joshua's on the ground uh, praying, crying out to God, and God says, get up off the ground. Stop praying and go and fight these people. And so there's this inter- interesting interplay in the Bible with prayer and a life of faith. Faith is what? It's action. Verse 15, Jehovah Nisi. One of the names of the Lord is, the, the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. And the, the idea there is we fight underneath the Lord, under his banner, under, with his power. In the New, New Testament, of course, in the New Covenant with Jesus, we're not fighting with physical weapons, but we're fighting with spiritual weapons, with, with prayer, with a life of love and compassion and kindness, and patience, self-control. But we're doing it as the Lord works through us. Jehovah Nisi, this is one of his names. God doesn't have a name like Tom, Dick, and Harry. He doesn't sue or whatever. He doesn't have those names. His name is who he is, his character. And one, is, one of the names of the Lord, he's our banner. The Lord is my banner. 